Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. A from Tel Aviv. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 from the sunny, beautiful, pleasant, pleasant grove. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Steve Edwards. Olaf from a very sunny and warm Portland. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest. Welcome back, Eric Simons. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hello from, from San Francisco. Actually, just the sun just came out. It was, you couldn't see, I couldn't see the apartment complex in front of me. It was that foggy this morning and now it's completely clear. It's like it never happened. In other words, San Francisco. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> great to have you back. I do want to ask kind of, I guess, a little more publicly about your partner in crime real quick. We usually see you with Albert. Yeah, Albert. Al, yeah, he's Albert is doing good. Albert's the CTO of uh, uh, co-founder and CTO of StackBlitz, and and he's doing good. He's actually he lives, uh, I think, like maybe th- three or four miles from me in San Francisco. So we, we uh, back four years ago, we decided that if we were going to be a remote company, we kind of needed to be uh, remote as well. You know, we couldn't cheat and be working out of the same office. So we 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 work remotely four miles away from each other. And, but Albert's good. And now that the team's grown a lot, I think the last time we were on this podcast, I mean, it must've been like four years ago is then I think, you know, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. probably talking to, to Albert and I, which was the entire company. Yeah. Uh, and now we're, now we're at 12 people. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of folks working uh, the operation behind the curtains now. Yep. And I, I just miss seeing you guys in the astronaut suits at NGCOM. So <laughs> who knows, who knows, maybe this year, maybe this year we'll be back. Mm-hmm. We'll have even crazier costumes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's kick this thing off. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web and then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong, and then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, go check it out, sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R slash JavaScript, and use the code JSJabber for three months of their base team plan. So I actually wanted to ask a question up front. I actually requested the Chuck that I could get to ask the the first question. And uh, the thing is this, like a couple of weeks ago was at the time of this recording was uh, Google I.O. And that's usually when Google make all of their exciting announcements and really looking forward to see what's going to come out. And then along came you guys and you kind of upstaged Google, in my opinion. And you came out with this announcement that was more exciting to me than anything they announced. So I, I really wanted to ask, who are you guys and how did you upstage Google in their very <laughs> own conference, no less? <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I mean, well, I think the, to, to be clear, right? So what we announced is built on just a decade of, of work that Google has been doing, right? 
making browsers more powerful and, and more capable. And so we we may have, uh, yeah, I think I think that we we got to have an exciting an exciting announcement, but but we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants in that sense, and and we're we're pretty. We work a lot with Google. They're our biggest customer and our, our biggest partner. And they're actually, through Google Ventures, they're an inv- one of the larger investors in our company. But so we're an, ind- we're an independent company, though. We're a uh, you know, small startup of about a dozen people at this point. And we, kind of the, the short of it is that we do a lot of work on you know making stuff work in a browser that shouldn't work in a browser, which kind of relates to, to what we announced. And so we work a lot with like the Chrome team and et cetera over at Google. Um, and they were very awesome. And they actually, they let us, they were put our product on display during the Google I.O. keynote because making use of, I mean, the, the, the APIs that Chrome is shipping are just unbelievable. Like they're so cool. Like it kind of blows the lid off of what you can do with just a web application. Like the line between a web app and a native app is blurring to a point where it's in, indistinguishable. So I don't, I don't know if that's the, the answer to, your, to the question you're asking, but like, but yeah, that's kind of our relationship with Google and kind of how, how we ended up being there. So yeah, but- I'm always one about establishing the basics here. So we're talking about we and who you are with Google. Could you, for those of us who may not be familiar, could you explain who Stackblitz is and what you do and how this fits into what you guys are doing? Yeah, totally. So uh, Steve, they're the cool kids. At yeah, the conference. I know that. They're always know the that. cool kids at the conference. Well, he looks like the cool kid, I have to say. I know, right? <laughs> Emphasis on the cool or the kid. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, is this is this a roast? Is this a roast? This podcast? <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just calling it, it like I see it. That's it. <laughs> the roast is next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm the it. official roaster. Don't take that away from me. <laughs> AJ, I'm sure it. you'll get your chance, AJ. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm excited about this. I don't think we'll we'll see. Is it Wasm? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I'm just cutting in with my question. Is it Wasm? What is it? <laughs> is it <laughs> Which part? Which part? Okay. Yes. Easy, okay. EJ. You're stepping on my question here. <laughs> yeah, let, so let, yeah, let's let talk, talk about Stackblitz here for a minute and go from there. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of give, I'll give the short of, of Stackblitz. So, you know, Stackblitz is an online IDE, right? So you like can crack open your browser tab, start coding. And, and there's a lot of these things. So, you know, when we launched Stackblitz four years ago, and we first chatted with you all on this podcast, actually, Stackblitz was one of the first products that entered the market that kind of spawned. There's a ton of these now with like uh, GitHub's got code spaces, there's code sandbox, there's a million of these things, right? And the problem, and actually, you know, if you date, it dates back to like 10 years ago, like Cloud9 was like the first online IDE and they got bought by Amazon, I think like five or something years ago. But the problem that they've always had is that they they provide a worse experience than your local environment, right? Like, have you ever tried any of these things? But they actually run your entire dev environment on like a remote server and the pro- and then they stream the results back across the internet to your browser, right? So the problem is that it, you're inherently adding latency to development. And when you're talking about web development, you want to like write code, see your changes instantly. So it's just in time to stream that back across the internet is a huge pain. Usually the VM you're connecting to is like, less powerful than your computer using to connect to it in the first place, right? So in just about every way, it's actually a worse experience in your local environment. So how Stackwitz is different is that we actually mount the entire development environment inside of your browser itself. So it's actually using your CPU, your memory, right? Your disk to run these these dev environments and they boot in milliseconds. Like you can actually, if you go to stackwitz.com and, and just like click on like the next JS starter project, 
That is booting a WebAssembly-based operating system inside of your browser, running the entire Next.js you know, dev tool chain, and does an NPM install in like you know, seconds, right, on demand, just entirely in your browser. So the benefits of this, right, there's no latency because it's, again, it's using your computer. It works entirely offline. And it has all the benefits of local, except it's actually even faster. Like your execution of Node.js tool chains in Stack Blitz v2 here is actually 20% faster than what you can even achieve on local for kind of a variety of reasons. But that's the short of it, is it's the fastest, most secure dev environment on the planet. It's the first time anyone's able, been able to run a dev environment within the browser security sandbox, which is pretty crazy because browsers are like the most secure runtime ever invented by humans. And so being able to run your dev environment, that is it's hugely beneficial, especially if you're talking about Fortune 100 companies, but even for open source maintainers who have to take in bug reproductions uh, and execute code that someone submitted, right? This is a very fast, secure way to do that. And, and I want to point out that you were comparing yourselves to various other development environment in the browser. So some of them were, like you said, were a pure remoting type solution, in which case you were running a standard development environment on some server and then just remoting the UI. Others were actually building the UI on inside the browser and just remoting the processing. But then the UI looked nothing like the development environment that you were used to using in your local system you're actually running something that looks exactly like VS Code, right? It Essentially, there's no real difference from in terms of, of the user, essentially, in terms of the user experience from running VS Code within your environment and running VS Code on my local computer, correct? That's, that's correct, right? But I, so the flip side of it, though, I mean, if you look at GitHub Code Spaces, right, like the VS Code team actually, like it's, it's they've got VS Code's UI in a browser. And and the, the difference, though, is that even though the UI could boot up instantly, when you go to that terminal and try and run a command, that's when you notice it. When you try and open up a file, edit, and hit save, that's when you're going to notice substantial lag and run into tons of issues. Oftentimes, if you start up a server, you'll get bad gateway errors, right? Because it's really hard to instrument those containers that they're running on a VM to, to run as reliably as your local machine would. And, and if something does go wrong, right? If something if that container gets borked, which happens all the time, oftentimes, you know, you, you go and reach for the refresh button in your browser. But what all that does when it's on a VM is it actually just reconnects you to that broken VM again. So unlike every other web app using these online IDEs, it's not clear how you get to how you can, you know, kind of refresh the entire thing and start from scratch by running it entirely in the browser, because on every page load, we're, we're mounting that container from the ground up, you can completely screw up your environment and you just hit the refresh button and you're back to you're back to a working environment. So it's really fast, really reproducible environments. So the, the big thing really is it's not necessarily even the UI because we're, we're definitely running all of VS Code there. But it's actually all of the commands, like that shell you're in, interacting with on StackBlitz, that's not touching a server. That's all happening. That's all executing using your CPU, your memory, et cetera. And that's the thing. That's where there has been no prior art on doing something like this is actually creating an entire operating system from scratch that's designed to work inside of a browser. So you effectively implemented some sort of a Unix system kind of running within the browser? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... Is this open source or is it patented or what's... Yeah, what's... yeah. so we file patents on certain parts of it. Like one of the key things is you can actually start HTTP servers inside of the browser itself because we have we have a virtualized T, uh, TCP stack that is mapped to the service worker API. So you can actually just like start a new node project, 
create a new server and it'll actually like spin up a live URL that you can actually go to it, right? In like a new browser tab or whatever. Our, our intention with this is that we, we want to help, we want to actually create a, some sort of standard ultimately around how WebAssembly containers, kind of like Docker's OCI uh, initiative, something akin to that. And I think there's a handful of other things that we've built here that make a lot of sense to be in the public domain instead of just like closed source. And so we've got a, a core repo where we're tr currently tracking issues and we're going to be rolling out like core pieces of the technology. So that's in uh, uh, the open source domain and people can use it and that sort of thing. Well, what makes sense to remain closed source for this? I mean, what, what's your, what's your money play on this? Well, so the way that Stackwitz makes money is uh, pretty interesting. And that was actually, you know, from four years ago, we, we really had no idea kind of where, how we could trade uh, the stuff, you know, the, the cool stuff we were making for monetary value. But what we ended up finding out was when you talk to the largest companies in the world, they have very genuine security, very genuine security problems. And that they, they are willing to invest in things that will be, you know, more secure. And they certainly will invest in things that will make their developers more productive. And so for us, you know, Stackbits' core business is actually uh, working with like Fortune 100 companies and actually putting Stackbits behind their VPN because they can't use the public version of Stackbits. It has to run, you know, air gap behind the firewall. Um, and by actually being able to use the browser, like every Fortune 100 company has approved Google Chrome as a secure runtime that everyone at the company can use. So instead of like, you know, again, if you're looking at something like GitHub Code Spaces, right? For that to run behind your firewall, you have to talk about how secure is the is the uh, 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 the virtualization layer of, of these VMs, right? And, and how they're being provisioned, which is a huge nightmare. Whereas with Stackblitz, it's a huge security upgrade by doing the compute in the browser. And it's way faster. Like you don't have to set up a local environment. Like if you want to check out two branches at the same time, you can't even do that on your local machine without cloning the repo separately. But in Stackblitz, you just crack open a new tab. You can have every branch of the repo open at the same time independently. And uh, certainly for like learning and rapid prototyping, bug reproductions, et cetera. So I think, I think for us, we're, you know, as far as, you know, what do we want to, what does it make sense for us to put out there as open source? I think things that help advance the, this general direction of the technology, because we don't really, I think that this is an inevitability that I think, for our view, we think the entire world should be running on WebAssembly based tool chains. And so we want to help facilitate that process. Um, and so we kind of view our, our core technology as something that's going to be kind of this ever receding proprietariness and will be continually moving into open source. From so, my perspective, just a second, AJ, from my perspective, it, uh, looking at your uh, uh, initial blog post slash press release, you know, the, the thing that you were mentioning there is Node. But from, from the way that I'm looking at it, and it kind of resonates off of something you said, is that the key thing really is that container that you've built. Uh, the uh, the analogy that you gave to to Docker, I think that's that's really key. I mean, okay, great, you're running Node within it now, but essentially you could run like more or less anything that that you can compile down, and and that's sufficiently compatible with the operating system that you're effectively running within the browser. So it's Node today, but tomorrow it could be essentially almost anything else. I that again that you can compile down, I guess, to WebAssembly. Um, so, and I think you're calling it web containers that, that like Docker thing, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and you hit the nail on the head. Cause I think that's, that's exactly where, if you kind of look at our, our roadmap here and the R and D that we're doing is, uh, today we're starting with Node.js and, and we have pretty broad support. We're in beta and there, there are certain things that are missing right now, but in the next 90 days, I think it'll be hard pressed to find things that are not implemented or, or, or just wouldn't be possible, you know, to do in a browser or something like that. 
And I think beyond that, it's it's absolutely right, like enabling other languages to compile down and, and be able to access the web container your core interfaces, right? And like something that can be standardized and is something that will enable not just like Node.js devs to use such a thing. And there, there's a lot of interest, like uh, one of the core people in the Python community or you know, one of the core developers of Python tweeted out, you know, when we announced this thing, he was like, this is why, you know, the Python community needs to, needs to really focus on WebAssembly because we need to be able to run it in something like Web Container. Right. So it seems like there's a lot of interest and momentum from other languages to really start to start thinking about this in a serious way. So here's, I guess, where I'm wondering what what the limitations or what what the pros and cons are. Right. Because what we're talking about here is you're talking about being able to run certain things on a web container and other things. Not so much. Right. And Dan's talking about kind of operating system level things. But it's limited by what WebAssembly can do. Correct. In a sense, yeah. So WebAssembly is definitely a key piece. I think the other the other thing that it's limited by is just is just browser capabilities. And so this is okay. one of the things that like the key insight that we had a couple of years ago that kind of led us down this path. It took us like it took us years literally to build this right. thing. And the key insight that we had was that browsers had gotten a lot more powerful than we or anyone else had seemed to realize. Because with the advent of WebAssembly and WebAssembly threads, where you can have shared memory being mm-hmm. being shared across different threads. On top of the the Fugu initiative from Chrome and Microsoft, these other folks are like the, the, the file system API. I don't know if you all saw that, right? But like web apps can now actually request read and write access persistently to a, a portion of your hard drive, right? And we're like, holy crap, this changes everything. Because now you're talking about APIs being available that that would allow you to write an operating system that isn't just like some science project thing, but like actually would allow you to open a browser tab, mount your next JS app from, from your development folder on your computer with read and write access and run an entire OS inside of the browser tab itself, running node, running NPM without even needing those things on your computer. That's crazy, right? Like you'll know, actually having this read and write back to your real file system acting as like this bridge to this, this operating system that has all the stuff you need, like this, this super fast development OS that you can take anywhere. And so it's like, and so there's kind of like a, a WebAssembly is a huge piece of this, but there's what they're doing on the Fugu side of this, bridging the, essentially the gap between what's an electron, electron app versus what's a web app or what's a PWA or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's really made this possible in, in, a, in a realistic way. So there's kind of a handful of things at play here. I just wanted to mention that if anybody uh, who's listening is interested in Project Fugu, we actually had uh, Thomas Steiner from Google on episode 450 talking about the, the details of that project. So so yeah, being, the fact that, that Google is opening so many APIs for access from within the browser is is incredible and it's also very it's also excellent that uh, microsoft is following suit because you know effectively edge is is the same as chrome these days or almost the same but it can do all this stuff now we just need apple to do it <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess i guess the piece that i'm trying to pick at here though is because you mentioned yeah python needs to get on board with WebAssembly and and things like that is that it's not going to run all of the native programs that I'm used to seeing run on my machine through the, the the browser on these web containers, but it is going to allow me to virtualize certain aspects of the things that I'm writing, not even necessarily in JavaScript, but in anything that will compile down to WebAssembly or that will run in a browser under certain contexts. And, and so anything that can take advantage of some of these 
powerful features and then reach through the browser into file systems or other systems that are available to my machine through Bluetooth camera, GPS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Any of this stuff, I can package up into a web container and take advantage of this stuff that comes with what's here. And yeah, I, I can run it on my machine. And so I'm just curious, like what kinds of things can I put into it? What kinds of things will I not be able to put into it? And then as some of these languages come around to the point where maybe I, I do a bunch of Ruby, but Ruby or maybe even like C compiles to WASM or something like that. What are the capabilities that I'm going to have with web com containers in the future as we see some of these things come around? Are we going to see some DevOps capabilities for this? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question, right? And I think, so like today, right, it's if you're doing uh, our kind of the first target audience that we're trying to to provide a real development experience for is like web developers. And, and it right. kind of makes sense. Like if we're, if we're making an IDE that is, that runs on the web, like web developers should be the first folks that get what we're up to, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like they should understand the value prop of a web app be, that, that allows you to make web apps. And and so today it's like you can you can run full stack tool chains entirely in this thing like Next.js, et cetera. You can write your own custom scripts and et cetera, right? So very broad support for Node.js. I think after that, right, it you kind of enter this interesting, and there's a lot of work happening on this. So there's the WebAssembly standard interface work, and there's a company called Wasmer that's been doing stuff on this, but essentially they're trying to bridge the gap of like making it easy for developers of these other these other languages that need a binary right because like when you when you run python or ruby you have a a binary that is that is interpreting that code or compiling that code right we need those compilers to be actually distributed as web assembly modules so you'll have web assembly modules that take python code in and then output web assembly modules right mm -hmm. and so that's kind of an active area of work that all these other languages are starting to do right now you know kind of to, to varying degrees right but I think that's kind of the big change that we're going to need. And so like, yeah, could you do DevOps stuff in this? Like, absolutely, right? There's 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 a lot of pavement that's got to get laid here in order for it, it to be simple to do these things. And there's going to be new types of workflows and certain stuff isn't going to just work one for one. But once you kind of get a taste of the future here, it just seems it just seems rather obvious that like, dang, this is this is how software development should be done. It's super fast. I don't have to install anything. It's it's incredibly secure. It, has, it gives you the strongest security guarantees of any developer environment on the planet. And so I think that there's certainly a lot of, of work that we're going to have to do here. And, and even just in the in the Node.js ecosystem, there's a, a kind of a movement to for like bundlers. People are, are utilizing lower level languages like Rust or Go or whatever to write things like ES Build that are incredibly fast. But and a big part of what, what needs to happen, though, is that instead of just compiling native binaries, they need to be available as WebAssembly binaries. And, and like ESBuild is available as a WebAssembly binary, right? And so like people need, you know, we have this universal, secure, fast runtime format called WebAssembly. And it's, it's time the world that just starts adopting and really treating it as, a, as the, uh, you know, kind of the canonical runtime target. Yeah, I have one more follow-up question. I know everybody else wants to ask questions about this too, but. I'm trying to figure out where this fits into the ecosystem with everything else that we have, right? Because we have web apps, we have mobile apps, and then we have sort of dev tools that live on our machines as kind of command line utilities. And then we have like IDEs that are kind of more desktop apps that, that this is kind of subsuming some of that, right? 
And then we've, we've got kind of the spectrum of all kinds of other things that we, we grab. You know, we have Docker containers that get deployed to the cloud. And it seems like this can kind of live in some of that space, or take over some of that space to a certain degree, or maybe just kind of live alongside some of that space. So, so where do you see this fitting in with some of these other pieces that we, we've already kind of engineered to solve some of these problems? Yeah, I think, yeah, a time will tell. I think there's, there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of benefits that that you gain from taking this approach. And I think off the bat, I think for developers, because there's kind of two two different variants here where you have like this is this is technology that enables new types of developer environments and mm-hmm. and even like production applications you can make, right? So I think on that side, I think I think that there's the the most immediate value that the, at least that we see is using this to create, instantly booting secure by default environments for developers that can be shared in a URL. That's, I think that's like, that's kind of the first very tangible use case that we see. And, you know, it seems like people are are adopting it rather quickly at this point too. And I think beyond that though, there's, there's a question internally right now that we're, that we're kind of pondering. We've, we've gotten some demand for this already, which is using this to actually build, you know, as, as a baseboard to build really powerful, applications that normally you would need to use something like Electron to do. Because out of the out of the box, yes, the web does give you web workers and et cetera, but it doesn't give you a it doesn't give you a nice, a nice interface to just seamlessly be it's much easier to write a multi-threaded Node.js application than it is a multi-threaded web app, right? So what would it mean if we release this as something that you could just NPM install and now you can build a desktop grade application that's delivered in a browser, right? That's one angle. You know, what does it mean to use this in a similar way as Cloudflare workers uses V8 to, to run a, their, their workers platform, what would it mean to be able to run like a web container at the edge instead of having a Lambda actually spinning up Node.js, right? What if you're actually just spinning up a WebAssembly-based environment that, again, boots instantly, is incredibly secure, designed to be multi-tenant, right? Like there, there's kind of a lot of interesting implications here. Some of them will, will pan out to be gangbusters. Some will pan, pan out to be dead ends. But it definitely seems, it seems like there, there's, there's a lot of potential in a lot of different areas for this thing. So I had a question just in terms of resources. And, you know, obviously to run an application, you're going to have to have resources to run Node and run everything, you know, from memory and CPU and so on. So it, moving it into the browser, on the surface, it just seems like it's six of one, half dozen of the other. In fact, you're taking all your resources that you need on your computer and you're moving it into the browser. So is the benefit, if I'm understanding correctly, that basically your browser is able to do this much more efficiently than a normal local development environment, and that's why it's faster? I mean, because it seems like, okay, I've, I need 50% of my CPU, I'm moving it into the browser. You're still going to use 50% of your CPU and your computer, but... Apparently that's not the case. It's it's because the browser is much more efficient. Yeah, great. Yeah, really good question. So basically, like this is this is what like one of the things that like one of the one of the, one of the kind of the key things that we identified that we we're like this seems crazy, but it actually should be faster theoretically. Which is that when you look at your local development environment today for web development, that is. If you look at Node.js, like there, there's kind of three things that you're really using at a high level. You're using Node.js to run your scripts. You're using Using VS Code to edit your, you know, your your JavaScript files or whatever, and then you have Chrome open and previewing your application, right? So if you break that down, though, you're actually using three co- three different copies of V8. One is in Node, one is in VS Code because they bundle Electron right together 
And then you have your the copy of V8 that's in Chrome. And actually, when, with Node.js on local, if you're running a script that's you know using a dozen processes, you have 12 different copies of V8 running at the same time. And so you're paying this multi-process overhead that your operating system inherently puts on when you spin up a new process. But the reason web apps are able to boot so fast is that you're sharing one copy of V8 across your entire browser. And, and so in, in V8, it's, it's called isolates. Essentially, the, the analogy to like a typical operating system process is called an isolate in V8. And it provides really fast, really secure context switching. So by actually bringing Node.js into the browser, right, and bringing VS Code into that same browsing environment as well, and previewing the app all in Chrome, instead of having dozens of different co independent copies of V8 where they cannot share any isolates between each other on your local machine, you're only running one copy of V8 where all of your isolates are coming from the same context, essentially, of your browser. So you actually cut out a huge amount of process overhead that you incur on your local machine by this incredible inefficiency of ripping V8 out of Chrome and then slapping it in a whole bunch of places, right? And so that's kind of, the, the, for the runtime performance, that's the big thing. And then on the NPM side, it's actually substantially faster to install this stuff in a browser because browsers are, are, you know, have gotten really good at making network requests and caching those. So every time you load the page, we actually do a fresh npm install because it only takes a couple of seconds, and it guarantees hold on, hold on, hold on. Fresh yeah. yeah, you're telling me that downloading a gigabyte of npm modules—that's I'm I, sorry, I don't believe that. I'm calling BS. Like yeah, if you try, you'd have yeah, to have a gigabit. <laughs> you'd have to have a gigabit connection for that to only take a couple seconds. Yeah, well, I well, I mean, if, if you're on if you're on terribly slow internet, your results may vary. But the, fundamentally, once it ends up in your browser cache, it's it's not going to network to download a gigabyte of node modules. Like, I mean, if you have your cache header set correctly, right? So that's like on your first load, it might take you I don't know ten seconds or something. I mean, depending again, a gigabyte. You know, oh yeah. This stuff's fast. And on top of that, so but the benefit of actually being able to own the containerization layer is that we can also be very smart about not downloading things that uh, are not on the critical path of execution. So we can actually. Okay, this is that, like, that I can believe. That that I can believe. You got some smarts there, but I you can't download stuff faster than the person's internet connection, and you don't have to have a slow internet connection. I mean, a gigabyte's a lot of stuff. That's ten hundred megabytes. So if I can download ten megabytes per second. It's right, but to well, it depends on the project, I suppose. But I mean, I think we, you're probably talking about the the unpacked size of a of a, a kind of a typical Gatsby project or something at that size, like right? Create React. We're not. Yeah. So when you talk about create React app, right, the size on disk is not the size over network, right? Like you know, Brotly and Gzip are very uh, popular ways to, com to compress this data down to something pretty reasonable. And again, so I think there's a difference between. On the first hit, you're yeah, you're gonna you'll pay a bit of a you know if you try it on stackbits.com, you don't even, because it, we're not using servers for any of this stuff. You can just you know try it without logging in, right? But you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about, where it's actually quite fast download even on the first on the first run. But if you hit the refresh button, it's it sometimes you'll even see it in like you know a couple hundred milliseconds milliseconds complete, right? But how is that possible? Because if I just call if I now it's been a long time since I've done this. But if I call vm.compile from the you know, private node API on some code, it takes time to, to parse the code. If everything's already available and all NPM is doing is just relinking from its global cache, it still takes several seconds to install something large and then it has to run it. And that vm.compile step is not fast, it's slow. It's slower, much slower than the fetching it from the 
disk speed is. And it's been years since I've done this. So maybe vm.compile is now almost instantaneous or they're using those tricks where it's half scripting, half compiling, and then delaying the JIT further or whatever. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure exactly what the it would be compiling because I think they're, they're kind of two separate steps at least where you're talking about essentially create, scaffolding out the node modules folder, which is kind of during the installation. And then, and then any execution would be getting triggered through like the command line, right? Uh, or something akin, right? Where it's actually just loading that stuff in and evaluating it. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right? the evaluation step. So I, I just like, I'm, you're telling me that it's faster. I'm not quite grasping this all. Cause when you say that you created an operating system, basically what I'm imagining is WSL for WASM. You're running Linux node on WASM through a WSL one like interface or a wine like interface that's just emulating syscalls. And I would imagine that there may or may not be overhead with that. I could see how there might not be overhead. And you're saying that it's because the syscall to create a process is actually not creating a process, but creating an isolate. It's allocating less memory. But does, like, what about garbage collector fighting? Because like, when they originally wrote Dino in Go, the reason that they didn't continue and switch to Rust was because the garbage collector would fight against itself. So if you've got a garbage collector in V8 and then you're emulating an operating system and then emulating, well not, you're emulating an operating system and then actually running V8 again that has garbage collection, isn't there a problem with garbage collection fighting against itself? So that, yeah, that's actually kind of the beautiful thing about, about the model. The other people who have tried to do this did exactly what you described and hit that exact issue, right? So, so the, key, the key thing here is that we're not bringing another copy of V8 to the browser. We've actually ripped V8 out of Node and are okay. use, it's using you said built-in that. copy of V8, yeah. You said that. I wasn't not... You are doing something mind-bendy that I'm not... <laughs> I'm not quite sure of how to put this in a frame of reference with what I know about operating systems and WASM. And granted, I have not dug into WASM deeply. I've watched several presentations at local meetups on it. And so I, I kind of get, you know, some some reference for it. But so I'm I super have, interested have, in this. I have a question about that. So you just said that you ripped V8 out of Node, which makes total sense because you want to, there are so many benefits of using the V8 that's built into the browser. Just as an example, you can debug the, the JavaScript code that you can that you write using the built-in browser Chrome DevTools. And I've actually done that with, with your uh, demo environment. I, I downloaded it, I put in the debugger statement and I had uh, the DevTools open and yeah, it works. So so that's that's pretty freaking amazing from my perspective. So yeah, but it does mean, I guess, that you had to construct your own version of Node because you had to rip out the stuff. So So you're not running standard Node, you're running your own version of Node. So my question then becomes, how do you maintain compatibility with Node going forward? I mean, you know, they keep releasing new versions of Node. You will, does that mean that you kind of have to run after the official uh, Node version and constantly update, update and upgrade your own version? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly it, is that you know, we've built a tool chain that, that takes Node from source and applies our own OS level calls and et cetera, and, and parts of V8, right? Like own wrappers around that stuff. And so, yeah, when, when new versions of Node come out, it's, it'll be part of our job to, to run that tool chain and verify compatibility, kind of et cetera, et cetera, right? 
the you guys are crazy. <laughs> it's you know it, it's it might sound like I mean it's it's been an incredible amount of work building this like wasm OS and like you know this is definitely the there's not a lot of prior art for a lot of what we're doing, so which makes you know it's, whenever you you talk about doing something like that, it's you spend an incredible amount of work figuring things out that other people will will be able to kind of just kind of reuse um, after the fact. But the benefit, right, of, you know, we, we spent years making sure that we built this in a way that would be actually pretty straightforward for us to, to maintain and grow. So it's actually a, a lot of the groundwork is really laid here at this point. And so when, it's, when we talk about switching from adding another version of Node, it's as simple as in, in, our, in our workbench, just saying, cool, Node version 16. blah, pull source and run compile runs against our test runners. We see what breaks, et cetera. Et cetera. It's actually, it's, it's not... It's not like we have to like go and kind of pluck through their, their source code piece by piece or anything like that. This episode of JavaScript Jabber is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud native apps. With app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting. As it has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images, DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than the other products. Plus, they build this new app platform on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of JavaScript Jabber, you can get started for free. Better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 of free credit because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 credit when you go to do.co slash jabber. Again, go to do.co slash jabber to get your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of JavaScript Jabber. And so you've effectively created your own version of Node. You mentioned before that you have your own version of NPM that's kind of different than the standard NPM because you, you mentioned that it's it's kind of optimized to run in your specialized environment. I guess there's also other reasons for having your own version of NPM. Maybe you can describe them. I assume you also have your own version of Git or of a Git client because you need to be able to do Git. And, and your own special version of VS Code, does that mean really that anything that I'll, uh, that I'll want to put inside the web container, I'll need to create my own special custom version of? No, no. That, then that's, and so I, I think that it's less of that we've created a version of Node. I mean, it's the Node.js binding source code. Like you view source on it. Like uh, you can actually kind of, if someone on Twitter did this, they compared it against the actual Node.js source code. And they're like, holy crap, this is actually one-to-one, Right what the only things that are swapped out are the the parts that are you know, done with like C++ and like, et cetera. And, and all of those are done to spec, like not, and not even, they don't even have specs for this stuff. We had to like step through exactly what's, what was going on, on the C++ side to figure out exactly how it needed to work to be 100% parity. So you're really, you're, what you're doing is you're using a, a version of node that, that is operating identically to to the you know the, the version like right now we it's like 14.6 or something like that i think that we've got on prod operating identically to how that that works in your local environment right so both first mozilla and then later microsoft i think mozilla tried to get jaeger monkey in node and microsoft was getting chakra in node and both of those projects were abandoned and now the entire microsoft browser has been abandoned so did you use their work? I, I know at least with Microsoft, they actually kind of paved an inroad to have a better 
binary API to be able to swap out the C++ code. So were you able to step stone from that prior work with Mozilla and Microsoft's attempt at replacing V8? Or was this a completely different path and you had to just trailblaze something utterly different? Yeah, unfortunately, it's the latter. I, I, I wish we, I wish there were, <laughs> yeah, we, I, if we could have used something uh, prior art for nearly any of this stuff, we would have. But this, the, no one had ever really tried to do anything quite like this. You know, it is very because you're keeping different. V8, but what you're replacing is the the operating system binding bits. So that's well, why this is particularly different. A bit. So it's actually what's kind of crazy about this, though, is that this is actually the first time that the Node.js, the, the Node.js runtime actually can run natively on top of Firefox and, and Safari, the JavaScript, the respective JavaScript engines inside of those browsers. Because the way we design this is that we, when you can assume that you have a spec compliant JavaScript engine, then you can actually just rely on that instead of like internal like V8 APIs or JavaScript core APIs or Chakra APIs, whatever, right? And so this is actually, this works cross-browser. We, we've got behind a flag, at least for like, Safari needs to ship WebAssembly threads, but Firefox has everything we need. We just need to get a couple of our end-to-end tests uh, fixed there. But that's what's kind of fundamentally different here is that, is that we could, we're making, you know, we're, we're relying on the existing JavaScript engine inside of the browser itself, regardless okay, so of it's, if that's V8. It's, okay, so you're not, so, okay, so this does sound kind of similar to the Microsoft Chakra thing. Okay, and then what about, in API is that that's just not relevant at all because in API is all about C++ node modules from the user space end and you're, you're downstream of that. So in API is not relevant to you guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least, yeah. It's not something that we see, uh, that, that I guess that we're initially targeting, I guess, for, for things that we want to support, you know, oh, so, so like in API modules presently won't work. You, yeah. You I, yeah. Okay. Anything that's going to need to like touch, binaries, right, that are not available as WebAssembly modules will not work. That's like a key limitation here is that it, it has to be available as a WebAssembly module. So and there's a lot of people switching stuff over to Wasm at this point. Okay, so in API might die to give way to Wasm because I've heard about you can, I, I think at least with Rust, there's actually a presentation I'll have to put in the show notes, but with Rust, you can compile Rust and Wasm and get it to run something in Node if I understood correctly. And so that's what you guys are kind of relying on. So, so in API, it sounds like as a project may just die because Wasm is so much more fluid and delightful and, and it, secure, and to, and which is a huge thing, right? And so I, I think and it, back when Node.js was invented, like and so this, our kind of viewpoint on this, right, is like. Ryan Dahl pulled V8 out of Chrome and brought it to locals so that because JavaScript is awesome and we want to use it to write native tool chains in a sense. We want to access more than the browser would allow us to because browsers have to take a long time to implement things because they have to be incredibly fast. They have to be incredibly secure, right? But by and they have to be backward that, compatible. And they have to be backwards compatible. But if you, and if you look, compare that to how the Node.js ecosystem has, has turned out, I don't think you could find a person that says that it's incredibly fast and incredibly secure. If anything, it's actually one of the worst offenders of security vulnerabilities of any of these things that have popped up in the past decade, right? Well, we're and, talking and, about NPM specifically, right? Like, you know, yeah, the, the ability to get one of 10,000 modules infected with something and then that be brought in. Absolutely, That's, right? I mean, NPM and, there, and there's the, the security model around Node.js itself it could, could be improved, Right. And I think in the big fact, problem, Dino exactly does that. <laughs> that was one of the motivations for Dino. 
It's exactly right. And so the, the, and the reason, right, that, you know, we talk about like an API or like, you know, just using binaries and having post install scripts, which is this huge unmitigated, you know, security threat in the NPM ecosystem. The reason all that was done in the first place is that we didn't have a secure binary format like WebAssembly at the time, right? The future wasn't here yet, but we, as the the web developer ecosystem needed something, right? Where we could write JavaScript for our tooling to actually compile stuff for the browser. And, but we're not, well, it's, amusingly, it's amusingly enough, we did have the JVM, but nobody wanted to use that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, like Node.js has been great. I mean, and, it, and it's, it's been explosively popular. It's just, we live in a different day and age today, right? Like we have, we have, you know, affordances that we that we didn't use to when these original design decisions were made. And so this coming coming back to, you know, I was on a podcast earlier this week where they were we were talking about with the ripping the V8 out of Chrome thing. And you know, they're like, well, isn't that a, don't we want these, don't we want Node.js to be coupled to a specific version of V8? And it's like, why would we want that? Right? Why like it, why would we want to like isn't it more ideal to, in the same way that I wake up and open my browser and it automatically installed an update and it's faster and it's more secure every day, right? Why do we not want that for our developer environments? Why do I, why do we want to be coupled to a specific version of V8 that's going to be outdated the day after a node publishes the thing and is, is going to be sitting there forever when we can actually have evergreen dev environments that just are continually getting faster and more secure, right? Well, I think that's and, the benefit of, of leveraging what all the billions of dollars, Google and Microsoft, these other guys are pouring into to making browsers the fastest, most secure evergreen runtime environment on the planet. I also think that there is, I don't know if it's if it's budding or wilting, but there has been some buzz around the idea of evergreen servers, which may be in the age of Docker and you know things that you've got low reliability, high availability things where the stuff's going to die off anyway, and then you're just going to get a new one and you're never going to know. So I guess maybe that's not, maybe that won't come to be a budding concept, but it, I think it's cool, the idea that that you could hot, well, I guess I guess we already have tools that solve this problem in other ways, so this probably won't come to fruition, but I think it would be cool to have hot swappable server side stuff as well. Well, it's, it's called serverless. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not the same because you aren't really getting access to things and everything's an API and... That's a completely well, different design architecture. Yeah, but, well, uh, that's yeah. the way of the future, I guess. You know, everything's supposed to be an API, the gem stack and whatnot. Well, and what's interesting is, is that a lot of the things that we end up with start out with an idea like this. It's kind of this, this big but vague idea. And then we wind up somewhere where there's a benefit or at least a trade-off that makes sense for a certain segment of the community, right? And so, yeah. Who knows yeah. where that will wind up taking us? It will blow my mind, for example. And, and I guess, Eric, you probably guys thought about this possibility as well of, let's say, instead of doing a Docker, I could put Puppeteer on the server side and then run a web container within Puppeteer. If I can, if I can then expose an outbound address, so I've got myself a server. That would be a very interesting proposition. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I think that's I think that that's one of the opportunities that we're probably going to probably going to explore once we hit general availability of web containers just as dev environments. I think production environments, uh, you know, like running it on a server is is rather compelling because your browser is designed to be multi-tenant by default. Like every web app is a separate tenant, and it has to be secure. 
multi-tenant. And if you take that and use that to, to run backend servers, right, you can have incredible multi-tenancy with really strong security guarantees, but with a full OS interface. This is what like, you know, Cloudflare did exactly this with Cloudflare workers. They ripped V8 out of Chrome and they let you run service workers at the edge, but, but you don't get all the things that makes Node.js actually really great like running real servers, running real backend code, being able to actually shell out and having multiple processes, right? Because there's just never been an operating system that could securely run within a browser context, right? So totally, I, I, think, I think that this is, this future has already started with like what Cloudflare is doing. I think it's just going to continue to, to, to ramp, especially with this sort of thing. Uh, so I have a technical question and a more general question. So I'll start with a technical question. So you were talking about how Project Fugu with the file access APIs enables, gives you access to the local file system that so that you can effectively actually open a local file off of your file system and, and start developing that way. And I, and also obviously you've got the, the built-in file system so that like you mentioned, you can do an NPM install like just when you launch the, the web container. Do you actually have like three layers? Because I'm thinking you have that external file system and then in the, in the context of the internal file system, it might be persistent or it might not be persistent. So how do you kind of decide what goes where? Yeah. So, so we actually have a, a standard op, uh, like for the file system specifically, part of web containers operating system includes a you know, POSIX compatible file system, which is designed to be pluggable and can, so you don't have, you don't have to connect a folder on your computer or whatever to stack blitz. You can actually just like save it to the cloud or just like commit directly to Git. Like you don't have to read and write from your local disk. Right. But you can actually plug that file system interface, you know, like when you click, hey, mount this to my computer, we're actually mapping that into the web container POSIX file system interface, right? So it's actually, you can plug it in and, and with uh, any number of different sources, essentially. And, and you also mentioned the TCP stack that you built on top of uh, web services. Could you elaborate about that a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, part of web development, right? Like it's pretty, pretty important to spin up dev services servers, like Webpack dev server, or like whatever have you. And so this is one of the, again, one of these things where there's not a prior art that was pretty difficult to do was like, how do you, you know, browsers actually have a built-in proxy server with service workers and you can spin them up on demand, right? And so essentially, I mean, the, the, the short of it is that we have a, a, a TCP layer that, you know, Node.js, you know, on local is interacting with and in, in StackBlitz web containers are doing the same thing. And that's actually getting mapped to like the service worker API and the WebSocket API and et cetera, et cetera. So you can actually spin up like, you know, GraphQL JSON endpoints, like entirely inside of your browser. So you're not really spinning up a TCP connection. You're spinning up a TCP, an emulated TCP connection on top of a WebSocket or something like that. Yeah, it's a virtualized TCP network stack, right? Because like, you know, obviously the, the, well, there are standards being pushed forward for like actual TCP access and like browsers. But in this context, right, like you have a virtualized TCP network stack that is, again, supporting all of the same calls that Node would be doing under the hood on your computer. 
but actually mapping it to the service worker API request response life cycles and WebSocket APIs and, and things of that nature. So if I want to be if I want to develop a web application that has a front end and a back end, I would effectively, I, I guess, open two tabs, I guess, and they're coming from the same domain, which is the StackBlitz domain. So so they see the same service worker, I guess, so they can talk to each other. And I, I could run the server within one instance and a client within another and and have them communicate with each other and debug them that way or something like that? Yeah, you could run them in the same Stackblitz project. You can have thousands of HTTP servers running in a given Stackblitz workspace, right? Just like you could on your local. You can just define a different port number and you know have two different commands that you're running in the terminal to run or, or have a single command that starts them both or whatever, right? So you can actually run multiple at the same time. But I could also communicate between tabs if I wanted to as well, I guess. Yeah, I think right now for security reasons, we actually don't allow it. But in, you know, in the future, you'll be able to say enable access between this project and that project and that sort of thing, right? Because again, like security is like one of the number one things that, that we focus on, like speed and security are the, are the you know, kind of the, the key things that we always look at. And which is in, in this context, it's actually pretty crazy because it actually provides one, by using service workers to actually give you the responses for your dev server, it actually has less latency than localhost because you're never actually reaching outside of the browser. You're just, you're going, you're completely routing that request in memory. So it's faster to load this stuff than your own localhost development is. But the second thing is that it's actually more secure because if you have some daemon on your computer that's scraping your localhost URLs, trying to get your know, development data out of it, you're actually not going to, when you curl that URL, that you're seeing in Stackblitz, you're not going to get anything because it's actually only serving within that Chrome security sandbox, right? So it actually provides you a stronger development security guarantee than using localhost would. And it's faster than localhost, which is like mind-blowing. Right? So I, I completely believe you on both points. I, I'm following you. I get it. Just curious, other than the cool factor, is there a pragmatic... I'm just... Well, I... I if if it's a development environment on a development machine, what what harm would it be if some rogue process is accessing local host? Like, what are they gonna? It seems like that would have to be such a targeted attack that increased security would not prevent the attack because you'd be dealing with an organization that has the type of funds and competence that they would find some way to social engineer. I mean, if they if they can attack your machine and your development process that specifically. It seems like they would, they basically be in the office building and you're just like waiting for them to find the right moment to get somebody's computer almost. Maybe 10 years ago. Supply chain attacks are incredibly common. The solar winds, right? I mean, this stuff is, this is stuff is happening at a really rapid clip. What's going on is, is that people are sneaking in software through the dependency chains and et cetera. And especially again, with the unmitigated risk of post-install scripts, when you install they can install oh, anything on your computer. I right? get that. I get that. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on the NPM install process. I was talking specifically about this. You're saying it's more secure that the local host doesn't is basically a socket rather than, a, well, a private socket, a, re, a user. But in this case, even more specific than that, a process. I guess I guess it'd be like a C group in Linux, maybe? Anyway, like... Never mind. It's it's not that important. Well, it's I guess to, to answer the question for the average developer, maybe not, right? But I think when you when you're talking about the people that are that are writing the software that glues together the fabric of our society, like the guy who's writing 
the UI. I think that's use. called the human heart, brother. <laughs> I, I, well, no, you're I, get, I get what the, you're saying. I get what you're saying. I'm just, you know, the guy who's writing the UI that you use to send money to your grandma for health and costs or whatever, right? It's important that we give these people developer environments that are secure by default, where when you're doing development, you have test data and credentials that, that you, you don't want to have leaked out, especially when you're talking about Fortune 100 orgs that are dealing with finance and healthcare data and, and governments and things like that, right? So this stuff matters. And on the flip side, even for someone who's just learning how to program, we want to, you know, I, th I think we want to give people environments that are incredibly fast, incredibly secure so that they, that they are well positioned to go create the Fortune 1 right? Or, or whatever they want to build, you know? So I think on flip sides of the coin, I think focusing on, on security is, is just a, is, is a good thing and, and trying to make it something that by default is, is way better. Right. Uh, okay. So, so, so next question, why can't I find stack blitz on Robin hood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe someday, maybe someday soon. Maybe I'm probably, probably not too soon, but we're not public yet at least. <laughs> okay, well, send like tw tweet it out when you are. I'm going to follow you on Twitter. Tweet it out when you are. I want to, I want to pick some <laughs> of this stuff. Like, I'm, I, I give you a hard time. I give everybody a hard time. I maybe if you, I don't remember last time we spoke, but, but this is really cool stuff. Like, I'm super impressed. This is one of the few projects where I'd say, man, I wish that I was involved in this. I'm probably not smart enough for it, but I wish that I had been there because you're doing some really cool stuff. And I just like this is really awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, I think everyone, we, we had no idea how to do any of this stuff when we started the company. Right. So, so it's like, it's get, you know, a couple of years and and focusing on something for a while intensely. You know, you, I think, uh, I think, I think everyone here, probably everyone listening could, could, could work on this stuff, but it's been a lot of fun. We've learned a heck of a lot and we're still learning a ton. Uh, I'm also, I just have the one, if I may, I'm oh, like, man. like AJ said, I'm, I'm like, really blown away by the stuff that you're describing so my obvious and and you know i'm still processing a lot of what you're saying so my obvious question is what's next <laughs> like what are you planning going forward what are your next big things or what are the hills that you're looking to to conquer next in the context of this uh, project yeah I, I think the immediate stuff is that we're really we're pretty laser focused on nailing runtime compatibility of web container like making it uh you know, you, today there's there's certain packages you'll try out that'll use an API that's uh, you know not fully implemented or has a bug or something. And so we're trying to hammer out the bugs as fast as we can. And I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but like you know, helping the ecosystem flip over things that are currently you know local native binaries over to WebAssembly, right? And there's actually it's been kind of amazing since we launched. There's I think all of the major bundlers are now actually either have uh, PRs landed for WebAssembly support or or are in progress. So I think the big thing is like helping helping get the world moving in the direction of, of flipping stuff to WebAssembly, I think is probably probably one of the longer running tasks we've got here. But I think at, towards the end of the year, we're going to be rolling out it, you know, kind of the full Stack Blitz V2 experience. And it's going to be pretty crazy because it's if you can kind of imagine like, what does it mean to be able to open up a dev environment in a link, especially when you're talking about building web apps, like on your, you know, you have a blog and, and, and you write it with Next.js and at the bottom of the blog, it says edit this page and you click that. And then it takes you to this live, environment that's got the markdown file that blog open it's got the dev server preview of that blog post on the right you make your changes you click open pull request and then it goes live on prod because you know Vercel or redeploys it right it's kind of like a developer cms or something this sort of experience we're talking about there's kind of a handful of cool things we're going to be rolling out with that but it's it, so i think that just for the web development world there's some pretty crazy uh 
there's some pretty crazy workflows that I think are going to get enabled. Like, I, I, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg at this point of like what this stuff can do just for web development. Well, Chromebooks might be popular again. <laughs> <laughs> totally. They, they finally have an OS interface now. Do you think mm-hmm. they'll make it so that you can print a PDF as a four up in a Chromebook? Because until that happens, no. <laughs> I was going to ask what was coming next for Stacklitz, the editor, and I think you kind of answered that. So that's interesting. I was also curious, will this work on my phone? It, there's, If you have an Android phone, it totally will. I think that on, on iOS, we're still waiting on Apple to ship WebAssembly threads. I, I imagine it probably depends on how much memory the tool chain you're using like requires. You could certainly run a Hello World Node.js application though, like something like that. If you're if you're running something that's like production grade, maybe not. But on iPad, like you know, once they ship WebAssembly threads, we're excited to get our hands on the latest there because iPad should have more than enough horsepower to handle real development workloads here. All the Android users just went, yes, finally, because <laughs> everything ships for the iPhone first. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I have an iPhone, but it's just funny because. I'll be talking to people and they're like, like Clubhouse, right? It's shipped for iPhone first. And yeah, and I'm like, I'm on Clubhouse and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, I have an Android phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? Historically and from experience, because I was actually working at a company that did remote access solutions from within the browser. So we were facing, you know, it, it the architecture was obviously totally different, but some of the similar challenges. And one of the bigger things that you, you actually have to face when moving applications that were designed for desktops into the mobile form factor is the form factor. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. talking about VS Code. VS Code was not designed to run in a phone with a small screen and a touch interface. So so that's obviously going to be... So theoretically, you could get it in there. It's just that the user experience could be terrible. Now, on an iPad, especially the new ones with the big screen, well, yeah, uh, Mm -hmm. go for it. Although, as I recall, iPads had... I don't know, maybe Apple changed that, but uh, they, they weren't, they, they intentionally don't have virtual memory. So you could run out of memory if you're, if you're like too aggressive with what you're doing within, within the browser. But I, I guess, you know, the new ones probably have a lot of memory. So <laughs> that might not be a, such an issue either. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We're, we're still, it's hard to, hard to test it just because they haven't shipped the stuff yet, but yeah, I think it seems it it looks positive at least from the testing that that we've been able to do. So Dan, stop bursting my bubble. Eric said someday, and so someday, somehow, on my iPad. All right. The other question I was just wondering about, and and I guess it kind of depends, is headless browsers. But I guess if the headless browser will run V8 with Wasm and Wasm threads and all the stuff we're talking about, it'll work fine, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I, and you could even do it today with our stuff, right? Like, I think it's because the stuff all, you know, it just, it, it runs on any browser engine, essentially, right? That, that has, that is spec compliant, at least, which Safari takes a while to get there. But yeah, absolutely. I guess you can say it's not true that it's all in your head, huh, Chuck? <laughs> it's always all in my head, man. All right. A- any other questions? Anything else we want to dive into here? I'm still processing, I have to say. I know. I'm I'm going to go to bed tonight and I'm going to be like, dang it, I should have asked this. So, 
Totally. Uh, I mean, we have a blog post that we put together on this too. If you like, I think it's over at like blog.stackwoods.com. You know, that kind of goes into some of the more details, like some stuff that uh, I think Dan, you mentioned about like the debugging and whatnot. It's pretty crazy. Like people use Chrome DevTools to debug Node.js code. It's pretty wild. But yeah, so if anyone's interested, they can check that out. Yeah, I've been uh, looking at it and it's been, it's been fun to nerd out on this stuff. <laughs> totally. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Steve, why don't you start us out this week? Okay, continuing with my sorted history of dad jokes related to work history. Practicing my uh, laugh. Yeah, Dan's been practicing his groan. So like I told you before, I think we need to get a sound effect that you just hit the button. Oh, so one of my jobs that I had before is I got a job as a bullet, but I was fired immediately. <laughs> that one. Oh gosh, I just lost my second one here. Oh yeah, that's right. I had, and when I was back in college, I think uh, I had a job as a scuba diving instructor, but I quit it after my first lesson because I figured deep down, I realized it wasn't for me. So there's my uh, contributions for the day. Thank you, Steve. Let's have a moment of All reverence. All right, AJ, what are your picks? All right, so I already picked a bunch of things in the episode, so I'm just going to recap what those were. So there's a, and I and I picked this one recently anyway, but the, there's the Utah Rust November 2020 meetup that was on WASM and Rust and the state of async await. And if you're interested in building stuff for V8 and WASM, that is an episode to watch. Basically, anything you're going to do with WASM, you're going to want to no rust because i think that's what everybody's doing because it's the language that's the really the best tool for the job then i yeah i mentioned oh no i didn't mention but i looked this up i put it in the show notes the solar winds attack a masterclass and novel hacking techniques interesting article from npr that's my title for it that's not what it's actually called but that was like the clickbait that they should have used except it wouldn't be clickbait because that's what it's about but because we mentioned the solar winds attack i wanted to throw that in there and then there are, I thought there was one other thing I put in there, but there's there's a couple other things that I found out about this week or improved on this week that I think are worth mentioning. One, the buzzword that I've been looking for, for CSS that quote unquote just works, TM, is called classless CSS. Classless CSS is where if you just have an HTML page, like a blog article, something that you would use like a blog or like a, a very simple type of page that doesn't require any appiness to it, markdown blogs, HTML blogs, etc. Classless CSS is the search term for being able to find CSS that just works without a bunch of noodly fangledoos. And or you could use a tailwind and then everything I was going to say. I thought it was But just then tailwind. I'd ha- no 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 no. I, I don't I don't like CSS. I don't want to build the CSS. I want to find CSS that is down to my level of stupidity and classless CSS is it to the T. So I I got a link to one of the GitHub projects that lists a bunch of the classless CSS 
they're not not framework, but I don't know what to call it. Styles, style sheets, single page style sheets or, or site style sheets. And the one that was really cool was something with an S down at the bottom that I, I might start using. I don't remember it off the top of my head right now. Also, if you and this, this is something we should we should talk about it at, at greater length at some point. But we've got Express. Everybody uses Express, right? I think I think even with Koa and with that other one that I don't remember the name of right now and then Happy, we've, we've got like three or four different web frameworks, but pretty much everybody's using Express, right? Am I right on that? Nobody knows? I'm, uh, I'm... <laughs> you know, occasionally. I try not to make a habit of it, I have to tell you. Well, what, what are you using then? I'm using Wix. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, when you're doing node development, duh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> I'm talking about for node development. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, there, I, the, the modules that are out there to add promise and async support are ludicrous. And I finally found one that turned out to be insanely tiny and is, is what I would have done if I had known exactly how to do it or spent the time on it. It was called express promiseify router, but it had a bug where, and this is project is years old and it had like one star when I came across it, but it's perfect. It's a drop-in replacement for the express router that does almost everything you need. I just made one change to it and republished it as at root slash async router, which is that now it supports error handling functions properly because error handling functions have a different signature than handler and middleware functions. Uh, but this simplifies express development, the modern express development so much because you don't have to have all of these dot catches or try catches. You don't have to have the 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 promise chain of hell or the try catch pyramid of doom. You can just use the old school express error handling, but basically upgraded. And then you, you just all your routes become a lot simpler. This is just a better way to do it. So I got a link for that. And then lastly, about a year buy, ago. Just to say, or just bite the bullet and go with Dino. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to argue against that. I just, a lot of us, when we need to throw something up real quick, we're using Express. I think that's still the most popular framework. It hasn't had a push in two years, which is fine. It's a complete project. Version 5 never came out and probably never will come out, even though it was halfway done. I think, no, it was halfway done like two years ago. And I think, it, it, whatever, it doesn't matter. But the other thing is a, a while back, I like a year ago, I talked about how I'd figured out how to do time zones using the INTL object. And, and I put a link for a project that now has been updated and redirects to this project. But but then I didn't actually go and finish that project and it turned out there were other problems that I encountered. But I finally just gritted, hunkered down and put the, the grit of teeth or whatever the idiom is into it. And I created xtz.js, which is about 150 lines of code. If you subtract the comments, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, but about that, that just does... Because INTL is so stupid. Why did... When people standardize things and then you can't use... Anyway, just puts some wrapper that shouldn't have to be there around INTL date time format so that you can actually get back a date object in the time zone rather than a string that you can't guarantee will be parsable on any other system because of the way that formatter... Anyway, so I, I got that. And then, of course, you know, if you want to follow me beyond code for uh, tech learning stuff, uh, I, I got the links there for that. So sorry, that's <laughs> long winded, but these are good things. It's worth it. All right, Amy, what are your picks? OK, sorry, it's pretty quiet again today, but I'm going to go with since we're talking about Wasm a bunch today, something I saw last week that I starred and you can now run Jupyter Notebooks in the browser. 
which Jupyter Notebook is typically a way that Python developers run a lot of their code. So it's something that I started kind of wanted to look into. So that'd be my pick. Yeah, on the Adventures in Machine Learning, a lot of the folks talk yep. a lot about yep. Jupyter Notebooks for their Yes, I thought it was pretty cool. You can do these in the browser now. That is very cool. I will have to check that out as well. Who haven't we hit? Dan, have you done your picks yet? Uh, yeah, so I've got two. I, I uh, got lost in AJ's rant. I can't remember. <laughs> it's okay. We all get lost in AJ's rants. Anyway, so uh, I've got two picks. So first of all, let's start with the fact that, I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I live in Tel Aviv. And, you know, we've had some interesting times here as if uh, Corona wasn't enough. If you're, if you're interested in kind of what happened between uh, Israel and Hamas in Gaza in this latest round. And you want a pretty good overview, but fairly short. So there's this excellent, well, I, I have to say it's, it's really good podcast uh, episode by the New York Times. They're the daily podcast. So it, it's titled Why Hamas Keeps Fighting and Losing. And I'll, I'll, I'll publish a link to that. I, I'm Israeli, so I can't claim objectivity, but I, I actually thought that this episode was was fairly balanced and positioned in a way that I think both sides would not object too much because you can't please everybody, certainly in, in, in this conflict. And on a lighter note, so I've uh, watched uh, the first episode of uh, Jupiter's Legacy. It's, it's interesting that so many superhero shows are coming out there that are taking this sort of a dark twist. So there was uh, The Boys and uh, The Umbrella Academy, and uh, now we have uh, Jupiter's Legacy. I think that of the three, it's like I would rank this as number three. I think that I found, I think The Boys was the best from my perspective. The, the Umbrella Academy came in second, although I know that some people put it in the reverse order. And I think that this, this would be the third, but I still found it to be quite enjoyable. So I can recommend uh, th this as well. It, it takes an interesting look at uh, this whole thing about superheroes not wanting to, to kill anybody and how that kind of uh, limits their ability to safeguard the world and actually even safeguard themselves against their, their, the enemies, the, the, the supervillains. So, so it, was, it was pretty interesting and I enjoyed watching it. So that would be my second pick. And those are my picks. Awesome. I'm going to throw a few of them out there. I'll try and be fast. So the first pick I have, I'm just going to follow on to the SolarWinds pick that AJ threw out there. Jeffrey Groman and I actually had a discussion. He's a cybersecurity expert, one of our hosts on Adventures in DevOps. We had a breakdown of the SolarWinds attack, and he explained it all very clearly because uh, I didn't have any idea what was going on with that. And uh, he made it very understandable. So I put a link to that in the picks as well. The other pick that I have, so yesterday was Memorial Day as we're recording this. Um, I know we're several weeks out, so this will probably come out around the 4th of July. But growing up, we always went out to the cemeteries and visited all of the uh, grave sites of uh, my dad's family, mostly. My mom's family is also uh, her her parents now, but her grandmother was uh, is buried up in uh, Provo, Utah. And so we always went up there and then we always went out and, and saw my dad's family. And so uh, we spent a bit of time together as a family. And then my mom took us around because uh, my dad's not with us anymore. And <laughs> amazingly, she remembered where all these uh, family members were buried. And it was just really great to connect with the past. And so 
I just want to kind of shout out about that and and I guess just encourage people to connect with your past, to figure out where you came from. Uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today and one of my coworkers, and uh, it's really interesting because on my mom's side, you go back three generations and you're in Europe, right? My either in France or England. And on my dad's side, as you go back, it's kind of this progression of settling the West and then American history, right? I mean, all the way back, I have ancestors that came across on the Mayflower. So it's just, it's just this really interesting travel through American history. I have ancestors that fought on both sides of the Civil War. I have ancestors that didn't fight in the Civil War because they were Mormon pioneers and left before the war broke out. And so anyway, it's just this really interesting thing. So I encourage you to take some time. And there are terrific resources on Ancestry.com, FamilySearch.org, and a lot of other places where you can find out about your ancestry. So I encourage you to go check those out. I'll put links to all that in the show notes. But yeah, and then for the 4th of July, again, there are just some really, really terrific uh, places to go learn about where we come from as a country, what some of the motivations were founding the country. And uh, I encourage you to go and look at some of that. Why some of the decisions were made in putting together the Constitution, why they were looking at breaking away from Great Britain. You know, you hear a lot of things, but what can actually be substantiated? You know, what were these men actually writing about when they tried to break away from Great Britain? There, there are a lot of things that are said that can't be substantiated, and there are a lot of things out there that can be. And so what, what was actually written by these people and what were they actually fighting for? But yeah, there are a lot of opportunities that are offered by us living in a country like the United States. There's a lot of rich heritage in a lot of countries, including ours, including others. So learn about where you come from, not just in your ancestry, but in the country that you live in. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to shout out about all of that. And uh, go check out devinfluencers.com. And those are my picks. Eric, do you have some things you want to shout out about? Good question. I think the one thing I'm pretty excited for is next JS comp, which I think is happening in like a week or two, maybe two weeks, something like that. But I mean, they've just been doing a pretty, um, pretty amazing job across the board. I mean, I guess Vercel just in general, but I think that they've, uh, I, th- I think they're going to announce something that, that's going to be pretty, pretty big for the, at least, you know, certainly for like the react ecosystem, I think. Cause I mean, the, it's an interesting point in time, I guess, it, for where we're at. You know, I think Next.js is pretty quickly becoming the default thing that people reach for when they want to start a new React app. And I think I'm excited to see what they what they roll out there. It's it, they're they're doing some pretty cool stuff. So I'd say you know, and, and the, the the conference site they made for it is really cool. Like it's like this like real time multiplayer thing. So uh, it's like just maybe nextjsconf.org or you know, I, I I don't know what the URL is for it, but yeah, nextjs.org/conf. But yeah, it's pretty cool. So I I'm I'm attending. Seems like pretty legit. I highly recommend everyone else do it too. Cool. And if people want to connect with you, how do they find you online? Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter. My handle's uh, Eric Simons forty. That's probably the probably the main place on Twitter. And then our, our Stackblitz account is just at uh, Stackblitz on Twitter. And check you can check it out over at Stackblitz.com. Do it in one click and don't blink because you know it'll boot in like milliseconds. You can do it <laughs> nice. well yourself. Good deal. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Eric. This is cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Great questions. Yeah, it was it was really excellent. Thank you for sharing all this information with us. And I'm playing around with it. I'm sure I'll play with it a lot more. It's just so cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, we'd love to hear your feedback too. Will yep, do. Absolutely. All right, folks. We'll wrap up here. And until next time, Max out. Adios. Bye. Adios. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.